I think we're going to be <clears throat> just waiting for a few more people to sign on, uh, and then we're going to start. Um, this is Joe Iran. I'm from the University of North Carolina. Uh, I think everybody knows Chip Schooley, who's um, you can see from uh, UC San Diego, where he's driven by something science. I think um, UC Science Dribble. Sorry, science driven, and and um, Dr. Ralph Barrick, who also happens to be at at UNC in, in Chapel Hill. And, and, and literally it's probably the, um, if not the most, one of the most knowledgeable coronavirus experts in the world, basically. And, and we're super fortunate to have him here. So, so Chip, maybe I'll let you um, uh, take it from, from here. Thanks, Joe. I uh, want to first compliment you on the way you made up your bed. It looks great. Um, and. Uh... <laughs> Thank you. And, and welcome everybody to uh, our- uh, Is that better? Uh, no, no, I actually like it way before. No, I, I want to welcome everybody in all seriousness to what I think will be a really interesting session. This has been a, something that we've been wanting to do for some time. Joe and I participated in a session at uh, CROI uh, with uh, Ralph uh, and several uh, other coronavirus experts uh, uh, about uh, what was at that time emerging uh, onto the world scene in early March. and. Um, the uh, interactions that we had uh, at that panel were among the most illuminating I've had since the epidemic began. And we've been hoping to have a chance to share some of that experience uh, with those of you um, who are part of our IAS USA family and others uh, around the country. So welcome everyone to the colloquium. We'd like to encourage you to uh, uh, engage with us with the questions and answer uh, um, uh, function that uh, is open to you and we want to just have an informal discussion about some of the challenges and progress that has been made over the course of the uh, last uh, eight months and in Dr. Barrick's case over um, a career uh, working on these coronaviruses uh, in multiple iterations uh, in multiple species uh, and uh, from multiple continents. So uh, Ralph, welcome and uh, we appreciate your spending time with us this afternoon. Chip, it's a pleasure to be here. Joe, it's good to see you again. Yeah. Um, thank you for the invitation to uh, to participate, and I'm looking forward to uh, having a pleasant evening with uh, the audience. So, 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 Ralph, maybe uh, you could start. But we'll 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 toss a relative softball to you. Um, what what are the features of SARS-CoV-2 that that make it so um, successful as, as a pathogen? I mean. Why are we in this state based on, on the virus itself? Um, so the best way to, to answer that is to contrast it with the SARS-1 virus that emerged in 2003. SARS-1 could transmit uh, fairly efficiently, but it never would transmit until you were very, very, very sick. And so consequently, uh, classic public health measures like um, quarantine and contact tracing could um, identify infected patients, identify contacts, get them isolated and burn the epidemic out. Now, um, the other drivers for the SARS 2003 epidemic was the, the animal reservoir of civets and hospitals as acting as major sites for amplification of the disease. So let's compare that now with SARS-2 of 2019. Well, SARS-2 can transmit before, from patient to patient before clinical disease emerges. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's much more flu-like in its characteristics. 
And so many, uh, I think the on average, I don't exactly know what the RL is, it's bounced between three and five depending on the study. But in general, um, most uh, patients will transmit to a couple of other individuals uh, with rare super spreaders infecting 15, 20 people in a very short period of time. And so in the absence of clinical disease, you don't know who's infected. You don't know who they've transmitted to. And you have these silent transmission networks that are spreading out through a nation. Uh, in the case of uh, the United States, in the middle of the flu season. And so it was hidden. It was there, the signature was there, but it was very, very hard to see. And so it really grabbed hold of us uh, when it finally um, managed to get into the country. So that's one factor, transmission uh, prior to the development of clinical disease. Another thing about SARS-2 uh, is it seems to grow much more efficiently in nasal airway epithelium and, and the upper airway epithelium. We're not sure about things like the soft palate and the hard palate. Uh, soft palate, uh, part of the oral pharynx, which is um, really important for influenza virus transmission. We don't really know what's happening in that region of the, of the respiratory tract. But in, an, in any event, uh, it's replicating in regions where there's very, very efficient transmission that can occur from one individual to the next. Uh, in this case, we don't know what the animal reservoir is. And in the hospital setting, again, those silent transmission networks allowed it to get established before we really got barrier nursing up and running and, and in place. And so things caught us off guard. Uh, I would also probably argue that in the United States, uh, we were heavily seeded by a new variant called D614G uh, in February. And this virus, uh, as far as all the data suggests, is it's much more easily transmitted from one person to the next. And so this is what's happening in our country today. And that, and, and that mutation, uh, that's in the, in the spike protein, is that right? Is that, is that change kind of the binding properties of the virus or how, how do you how do you think that mutation affects things and and does it affect things like vaccines you know people are worried about vaccines and whether um you know the, the virus will kind of escape from from uh, uh, vaccine uh, based immunity yeah just to put it in context for the listeners um what came out of china had a uh, a particular amino acid sequence in the spike like a protein and that's what arrived in Seattle and on, on, and on the West Coast. Uh, in Europe, a variant emerged that had a, a glycine residue in the spike like a protein at position 614. Who the heck knows what that does, right? Well, it turns out what that does is that, um, and we have a paper in this up on BioArchives, which is under review for publication. It does several things. One thing that it does is it allows the virus to get into cells quicker. The infectious infectivity of the virus is higher. It, um, uh, a bunch of structural biologists have looked at that mutation. Um, I like to put it in the context of a movie. So uh, I don't know if everyone remembers the movie Alien. Yep. You know, the, the egg pods and aliens with the flaps that would open up and the alien would come out and, and grab the person. Well, that mutation basically opens up the receptor binding domain, at least one receptor binding domain. So it's in the open position. Mm. And that allows it to grab onto the ACE2 receptor really efficiently. That's the hypothesis. And so it can infect really easily. It's much more likely 
to grab onto the ACE2 receptor to mediate docking and entry into the cell. And so in the paper that we, we have done, we've shown that the virus actually replicates uh, more efficiently in nasal airway epithelium in your nose and, and cells from the nose, cells from the human uh, bronchial airway epithelial, and even in what are called head-to-head -head competition studies where you infect a, a single culture of cells at 10 to one ratios, 10 ancestral strain versus one contemporary strain, the contemporary strain will outcompete the ancestral strains and outgrow them with two, within two or three passages. So they're much more fit. They're much more. They're at a much more competitive advantage. And in hamster studies, in collaboration with Yoshi Kaoka, we've shown that these um, the new contemporary strain can transmit to hamsters um, much more efficiently within the first two days. And this is by airborne transmission. So you have two hamsters in different cages that are separated by space. And the only way one can infect the you infect one, and the only way this one over here can get infected is if there's airborne transmission. And the new variant will infect five out of eight hamsters within two days. The old variant, zero out of eight in two days. By four days, they've infected all the hamsters both equally well. But that early transmission occurs with the new variant. So it grabs the receptor better. It enters cells. It's more infectious and it's more transmissible. And that's why the, uh, the studies of the evolution of this new genotype have, um, have argued that there's about a 30 to 40% increase in the RO or the transmission rate from one person to the next because of this mutation. Now, uh, it doesn't seem to affect pathogenesis. So it doesn't seem like it's more virulent, which is good news. And the other thing is that it doesn't seem to affect its ability to be neutralized by antisera. So the current vaccines, the current <clears throat> people who've been, who've been infected with the, the ancestral strain, the first strain that came out of China, um, they can neutralize this virus very, very well. And in mm -hmm. fact, it's probably a little more sensitive. Right, because it's, because it's open. It's in an open configuration and the, there's important neutralizing sites on that face that grab onto the ACE2 receptor. Mm -hmm. And so it's, uh, it's, it's good news for vaccines um, it's bad news because it's much more transmissible potentially. And, um, but then again, you know, we have 7 billion naive hosts on the planet. And so the virus is <clears throat> just, you know, looking for, to evolve strains that can spread easily and transmit easily. That will probably change if 40 to 50% of us have antibodies against the virus. It's going to cause a different selection pressure. So what would you be looking for as a molecular epidemiologist about directions the virus might go? I mean, we've talked about its um, mutation rate being substantially slower than flu and HIV. Um, what other things can the virus do to fix itself up uh, to um, uh, help itself around the human population? It's thought it this out pretty well so far. I think, <clears throat> well, you know, there's, 40 million of us that have been infected at it, you know, that we know of. Right, exactly. <laughs> it's probably two to three times that with, at a minimum of what we don't know. So we're probably somewhere between 100 and 200 million infections on the planet. So the virus has colonized us and it's not going to stop until either we vaccinate the population or it burns through the population. Those are the two outcomes that we're facing. And, um, 
am I expecting, I'm not really expecting a change in virulence, uh, but this is uncharted territory. So mm -hmm. for example, we, uh, the last pandemic respiratory virus that swept through the population was in 2009 with H1N1. And that was in the context of some pre-existing immunity that could provide some protection. So this is, this is never, this is un completely unprecedented. So we don't know what's gonna happen in terms of how the virus will evolve and colonize the human host. And so um, we can't really predict it. Uh, the other thing that we can't predict is that, you know, this virus presumably came out of Southeast Asia, Southern China. Um, it's coming in contact with many, many different mammals that it's never seen. And so it could colonize bats, it could colonize other common mammals, mammalian species to set up new reservoirs in North America or South America or Europe that um, are completely unanticipated. Yeah. And uh, in that context, especially in bats, they can come in, the virus will come into contact with many other bat coronaviruses that set up scenarios of recombination. And recombination is basically a, a function where a cell gets infected with two closely related coronaviruses and they admix their genetic material. And coronaviruses do this really well. <laughs> and so uh, all sorts of potential exists for um, the emergence of, of new variants um, because of colonization of other species outside of the human host. So it's un unprecedented, undiscovered territory. We don't know. We've certainly seen the um, evolution of our understanding, at least, of the host range go from bats to humans, now to hamsters, and people are, it's, it's as you said, and dogs and cats can occasionally have, have had virus isolated. Uh, do you see the virus looking for additional species to uh, evolve into over, over time? It could, uh, in addition to bats, uh, serve as uh, like camels do in the Middle East for MERS? I think uh, we've already seen um, pretty extensive infections in mink farms, for example. Mm -hmm. So um, that's one potential reserve, re reservoir. Um, bats are kind of the most logical one. Uh, they're certainly the one that's uh, a major concern because of all the other pre-existing bat uh, coronaviruses. You know, each bat species has on average somewhere between seven and 10 unique bat yeah. coronaviruses. So this massive reservoir for genetic exchange and, and uh, evolution in that environment. Um, otherwise, uh, there's a large number of mammalian ACE2 receptors that can be used for docking and entry. And so it only takes a single point mutation or two to adapt efficiently to that receptor. And uh, then there are some other host factors that are important for um, infection and maintenance of the virus in the population, in the animal population. Um, most likely the most important being density and the ability to set up a chronic infection. And if those kind of events occur, then we'll have, we'll have a reservoir. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the density of bats. I never really I thought about, about that, but, but that makes a ton of sense, the density of bats. Do you have a sense, Ralph, of, uh, of why, for example, younger people seem to be less symptomatic? We, you know, there are all these different studies looking at the proportion of people that become infected and become symptomatic. And it seems like it's really, you know, inversely, 
uh, are directly proportional to age, really. You know, that if you look at nursing home populations at 60 or 70%, if you look at, I think, it, I mean, at UNC, obviously, we've, you know, probably thousands of students that have been infected. And, and I, I think, you know, maybe we've had one or two hospitalizations total of, of students. What, what's, what's different? Is it, is it the immune system? Is it, what do you think? Um, every coronavirus that we've worked with has a really strong age-related disease gradient. In other words, uh, the mild, generally mild, you know, every human coronavirus that we've worked with, <laughs> sorry, has been generally mild in younger uh, individuals, uh, although the very, very young can be highly susceptible. But in general, the younger individuals have mild disease. And the, more, the, the more elderly you are, the more likely you're gonna have severe disease. That's the case with SARS, SARS-2, MERS, even the contemporary human coronaviruses like OC43 and 229E and NL63 um, in general cause mild common cold infections in young children and, and adults, except for in seniors. And there've been outbreaks of OC43 in retirement communities with 10% mortality rates, which are equivalent to HKU1, which is another contemporary human coronavirus, was actually identified and uh, misclassified as a SARS case. It was it was a happened an elderly gentleman who died from the infection. So, hmm. in general, coronaviruses have this strong age-related disease gradient. So the question is why? Well, part of it's probably immunosuppression of the host of the uh, elderly host. Uh, part of it's related to ACE2 expression. Um, ACE2 expression has a tendency to, re, to drop, to go lower, to be, go lower as a function of age. Um, it's also a sex, on a sex-linked chromosome, so males have less ACE2 than females. Hmm. And uh, too much ACE2 may actually be protective. Huh. And so that's one hypothesis. There's the immune suppression hypothesis. There's the ACE2 receptor expression hypothesis. Um, and so those are both factors that can contribute to serious, more serious disease as a function of age. One of the points you made in the past is that in addition to um, the age-related pathogenesis, um, these viruses don't induce immune responses that last very long. Uh, and that uh, instead of having to use viral evolution to continue in the human population, uh, the same virus can come back every three or four years as the, as the um, immune density declines. Are there strategies to get around that as we're trying to think about vaccines that are gonna do a better job of inducing immunity than natural infection, which doesn't seem to be very protective over the long term? So if, when you think about modeling where this virus will go, um, one model that you can use is what, what do we see, what's the, uh, what's the epidemiology of the contemporary human coronaviruses, the ones that we live with every day? Well, those are mostly childhood infections and they can be severe and cause lower respiratory tract infections in very young children. Uh, but that, um, and they induce a protective immune response, but it does wane over time, but it still provides some level of protection. And so typically the coronaviruses were defined as common cold viruses. They replicate in the, in the nose and upper airways. Um, mild symptoms in most people. Uh, your immune system lasts for about two years, two to three years, and then you get 
another infection that is again localized primarily in the upper respiratory tract. Um, and that occurs until you begin to um, become elderly and immunosuppressed where your immune system begins to fall off. And then that, uh, that immunity um, wanes sufficiently to cause a lower respiratory tract infection that can cause serious disease. So the prediction with SARS-2 would be uh, after, after the virus runs its course through the population, uh, the virus would maintain itself primarily by infecting newborns, young children in the first few years of life. And then there would be reinfections that would occur throughout your life. But uh, in most cases, it would be mild common cold-like symptoms. Hmm. And so that would be the prediction for where SARS-2 would be going. It may just take five years to get there. And with a mortality rate, maybe around that, nobody really knows what it is. Let's say it's 1%. That's, that can be a, that can be a lot of, uh, mortality yeah. <laughs> on a global scale. <laughs> Ralph, there are a couple of questions in the, in the chat. Um, sure. One of them is, um, why is the rate of transmission in Africa lower compared to the rest of the world? Is that a, is that a true difference or is that a testing phenomenon? What, what, what do you think? Is there, is there some genetic um, difference um, that um, the uh, virus is failing to exploit or? Uh, there could be a lot of different factors. Uh, one thing that we need to look at is whether, you know, what's the role of the microbiome and chronic inflammation in, uh, in pathogenesis. So if you have a population that has um, a low level, uh, some percentage of parasitic infections or other uh, chronic uh, infections, how does that influence disease, the disease course? Uh, if it is uh, somewhat attenuating, then that could explain the data. Um, it could also be sampling in that um, the epidemiology and the testing is not as, as thorough as, as, as we might like in Africa. Uh, there's certainly some places that have done a good job of this, but I don't know if you could, you know, extrapolating that to the entire population of Africa based on six to 10 sentinel sites might be um, over-interpreting the data. Um, so I think we still need to look at that in more detail, but it's certainly, it also could be genetic. Uh, so uh, there's uh, been at least uh, two papers published about the susceptibility loci on chromosome three. Mm -hmm. um, that uh, has a set of about five genes on it that might be playing a role in pathogenesis. Uh, we don't know exactly, for sure, exactly what's happening and what the role of those genes might be or how they could be contributing disease. But that's, uh, if there's a, um, um, if the distribution of this, that susceptibility allele in terms of resistance to infection is higher in Africa than it is in other populations, then that would also explain the data. That, I mean, there's a ton of things that we don't yeah. know. Could be timing too, like the, the, when the virus hit Africa, they were kind of moving from spring to summer um, uh, uh, you know, this, this, you know, the, the peak, they had, a, they certainly had a peak when, when we did, and then they, they seem to be coming out of it now while we're going back into it. Do you think, I mean, does seasonality really matter or is it just proximity? Um, I think, I think seasonality, I mean, there's, um, seasonality de definitely matters and it matters in a couple of ways. Probably the, the most important is the potential infectious dose that you might receive mm -hmm. might be higher in cooler 
temperatures and in closer proximity. So um, in animal models of uh, coronavirus infection, uh, there's a clear uh, infectious dose range that it might require 1,000 to 10,000 virus particles to establish a robust pathogenic infection. And so in summer months uh, with, um, with what you would hope would be um, populations that are more distributed, from, uh, more uh, separated from each other, um, that the infectious dose would actually be lower. And so the disease severity would be proportionally lower. And so that's one of the main concerns as we move into the winter months. Uh, not only will might, what might we see increased transmissibility, but we might see increased viral load mm -hmm. that's establishing the infection, in which case the progression may be much quicker. Okay. And if the virus does, virus doesn't need too much of a head start to really get ahead of the immune system and begin to shut it down in, in that case, then uh, uh, so... Again, it's undiscovered territory for us because in reality, our pandemic was um, really recognized in April as a real problem. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that would be the time period where the um, temperatures are increasing and perhaps the infectious load, the dose that's going from one person to the next may be decreasing. The aerosol scientists also talk about um, indoor heating lowers the humidity and that uh, dries the, the aerosol particles more rapidly and allows them to stay airborne for a longer period of time. Uh, when you, also, yeah. So you, you're absolutely right. We could end up with a kind of a real acceleration uh, that uh, even uh, outstrips what the IHME has been predicting. Um, and, and the number of asymptomatic infections may change. Yep, absolutely. So, so we don't know what you know, we don't know what's going to happen in the winter months. This is going to be the first time we experience it. And in fact, the same with the rest of the world for the most part. So as with Game of Thrones, winter is coming. <laughs> coming. Thanks, Jim. <laughs> <laughs> not, not, a good, not a good analogy, sorry. So what, one of the other questions in the chat box here has to do with, um, with uh, therapeutics. Uh, Joe and I are therapeuticists. We are... Uh, um, we would love to see vaccines succeed. Uh, what prospects do you see for an analogy to HIV in which the vaccine promise is still there, but the therapeutics will change the disease? Can you, can you ask that question again? I didn't quite follow well, in, the... In 1984, um, a, a couple of very famous people said we'll have an AIDS vaccine by 1986. And we spent... Um, a fair uh, bit of time and money on an AIDS vaccine. We don't have one. AIDS has, the face of AIDS changed because of therapeutics. That's true. Uh, is it feasible that uh, longer acting, orally bioavailable or other um, drugs could be used to take the lid off of uh, the disease and people at substantial risk for the disease uh, or could be used to interrupt outbreaks um, even if we're still playing with vaccines 10 years from now. Yeah, an oral therapy is the game changer here. A direct acting viral, antiviral or oral therapy is the game changer. And that's because all the animal models agree. And the quicker you get the therapy into the animal, uh, before peak titers hit or by the time peak titers hit, 
the more likely you can change the course of disease and end up with a survival situation for the patient. And um, of course the problem with remdesivir is the IV drug use mean, and coupled with, I would guess a clinical decision about bed space, right? Um, yeah. You're not, you can't be too aggressive by admitting every patient when you know a good fraction of those patients are going to have mild disease and putting them on therapy. So you have to have, you have to triage to determine who's gonna go in the hospital. And every, um, every single day of triage with a direct acting antiviral makes it less and less effective. Yeah. And so um, an oral uh, therapy that you can take home as soon as you're diagnosed to go on that therapy is a game changer for the entire field and for the, uh, uh, for the community and for the patients. And it will also probably knock transmission way down, which would be good. So just that's the, that's the real game changer. And then the second game changer is how do we deal with this pathogenic inflammatory response uh, that occurs at this, in the second phase of disease? So I always view it as a biphasic disease, first uh, associated with acute virus replication, destruction of uh, AT2 cells or alveolar type 2 cells which can lead to all kinds of problems with oxygen, lack of oxygen and flooding of the alveoli, which is generally never a good thing to have happen. And, um, and then as the virus is cleared by the immune response, you have this immunopathologic response, which um, uh, also causes damage. And so how do we control that? And uh, there's a lot of anti-inflammatories being tried Dexamethasone looks like it works well late in infection. Of course, if you give it too early, then you immunosuppress and the virus wins. That's a big, that's, we, you know, we had several questions, Ralph, about that, about using dexamethasone and outpatients. Those were, these were questions submitted. And I think in the recovery trial, as you just pointed out, people with moderate disease who got dexamethasone actually had greater mortality. It didn't quite reach significance when they adjusted for it, but, but clearly th there was greater mortality. And it, it seems like in the beginning, there's this kind of race between, you know, viral pathogenesis and development of antibody um, or, or an immune response. I don't know if it's antibody that's important, but, but you know, the recent data from Regeneron suggesting that people that were symptomatic and had antibody were much less likely to go on to have um, illness where those who were at similar degrees of symptoms but had not yet generated antibody and a, a therapy as you mentioned that would kind of slow the pace of the virus so the immune system can kind of catch up um, would, would like you said be a game changer I think. Right I, I, um, I think anti-inflammatories will work well uh, used sequentially with the direct acting antiviral. So if you can put them on a direct act, like a, an oral um, a direct acting antiviral or even a therapeutic antibody early enough um, and then uh, come back through with an anti-inflammatory, that combination where you're controlling virus replication and simultaneously trying to damp down a little bit on the immune response may, may be the, you know, the right cocktail. The downside of that may be that the, those patients don't mount very good immune responses from infection and then they're, they could be susceptible again. So that would be, the, you know, that's sort of like, we don't know the, the consequences. The, but then again, you treat the disease you're facing because um, 
you at least, if, if, if patients don't survive, you don't ever have to. Right, you know, deal with the you know. kind of second and third problems <laughs> yeah. that, um, I mean, we, there's a lot of discussion about these kind of longer term side effects. You know, people are calling them long haulers, um, people who seem to recover from the acute infection and even from the more um, life-threatening immune response, but then have these persistent symptoms. I assume that these people are, are, have cleared their virus, or, or do we even know that? I mean, my my prediction would be that they cleared the virus and had set up some sort of chronic inflammatory uh, disease process that could progress to pulmonary fibrosis or some other chronic lung manifestation. There's a lot of damage occurring in the alveoli, and A22 cells, you know, and the other cell that. Um, other stem cells probably in the lung are being infected, which affect repair processes. And so there's probably all kinds of chronic lung manifestations uh, that, that are either gonna take a long time to recover or perhaps um, in some cases, um, the virus may well have killed you. It just takes another four years for that to occur. Hmm. Sort of a hit and run type disease. Yeah. So, Sorry, go ahead, Rob. Uh, do we understand some of the, um, are there animal analogs to some of the vasculopathy that uh, people see in lungs of people with uh, severe disease in addition to the air airway disease? Uh, not yet, I don't think. Okay. And do you think that kind of um, intrapulmonary and, and sometimes extrapulmonary coagulopathy that that is, is that a direct infection of, uh, of endothelial cells that also express um, ACE2 or, or is this an, another immunologic phenomenon? So as far as we can tell, using both primary lung endothelial cells and animal models, the virus doesn't seem to infect endothelial cells that well. Uh, so it's probably some sort of secondary mechanism. In terms of the coagulopathies, um, we've seen the coagulopathy with SARS-1 infections mm -hmm. in mice. Um, we have not, you know, we don't have, uh, we're very interested in obviously in doing those similar types of experiments in our mouse models that we've developed and those experiments are progressing, but it's not like I can tell you that we have definitive proof that there's a coagulopathy that's occurring in the context of infection. But I think there is personally in the mouse model. It makes sense. I think SARS-1 and SARS-2 have very similar pathogenic models. And um, in mouse models, for example, where we map susceptibility loci for that regulate SARS coronavirus pathogenesis, a lot of those same susceptibility loci seem to be important for regulating SARS-2 pathogenesis as well. So I believe there's a coagulopathy in the mouse models. I just haven't. Uh, published a paper proving it, yeah. <laughs> uh, so somebody has a question about the paradoxical, um, the, the parent paradoxical um, observation that um, of more ACE2 receptors, less ACE2 receptors and disease severity. Um, if you have more receptors for the virus, why would the disease not be more severe in that setting and, and progression more rapid? Yeah, so there's a, a fellow named Penninger who did some really interesting experiments between 2003 and 2010, where he showed that high levels of ACE2 expression are actually protective 
for um, not only SARS coronavirus pathogenesis, but also flu pathogenesis. So ACE2 is an important, has, is um, not only important for regulating uh, homeostasis, but it's also now, some of the cleavage products can signal down through various pathways to turn on inflammatory processes. And so high levels of ACE are actually protective to some extent in disease models. And if you knock out ACE2, for example, in a mouse and infect it with flu, the animal does very, very poorly. Hmm. Uh, so ACE2 is uh, not just a receptor for entry, it's an important signaling molecule that can regulate inflammatory processes and other processes that uh, can lead to disease. So the feeling is eight high levels of ACE2 set up a, um, a signaling pathways that are more protective and less inflammatory. That's the theory anyway. It makes more sense than trying to make direct uh, um, tie into the receptor density and uh, that is the only role for that, for that molecule, it certainly does. Yeah. Interesting. The uh, people here are asking, obviously, um, about the question about um, laboratory creation of the virus. Um, which laboratory do you think made this virus? <laughs> uh, right now, there's no evidence that any laboratory made, made the virus. Uh, the, the virus's closest relative is a bat virus called RATG13. It's 96% identical to it. Um, you know, uh, um, if I remember correctly, uh, HIV was supposed to be a laboratory acquired uh, generated right. virus. Um, H5N1 was a laboratory generated virus and uh, SARS was a laboratory generated virus. And now SARS-2 is a laboratory generated virus. And um, to begin with, um, Pathogenesis is an incredibly complex process and it's almost like a symphony. And all the instruments have to play exactly right to cause disease. And uh, we're not good enough mm -hmm. to do it by uh, straight engineering type processes. Um, and the second thing is, you know, we've had eight pandemic viruses in the 21st century, all of which came out of animal reservoirs. So is it really surprising that another one came out of an animal reservoir? Um, all the contemporary human coronaviruses can be traced back to strains that existed either in bats or in rodents and cattle. And so um, uh, zoonotic viruses um, spill over into human, pop into human populations. They spill over into other animal populations. There are 7 billion of us on the planet. We are in close proximity and high density in regions where um, uh, many of these zoonotic viruses live in Southeast Asia and in Africa and in South America and in the United States. And uh, because we're naive, eventually a virus figures out a way to colonize a new host. That's what they do. And they do it very well. And RNA viruses have a high mutation rate. And so they exist as a swarm of variants and those swarm of variants can rapidly adapt to a new species. Ralph, you, one thing about RNA viruses is, you know, we, we talked about a, an oral antiviral being a game changer. I mean, um, there's a lot of RNA viruses we'd like to have a really good therapy for. And I, I assume people have been trying to develop 
therapies, obviously for influenza for sure, but um, for rhinovirus, you know, and, and, and uh, it seems like the polymerase of, of, of um, the coronavirus is um, not so easy to, to kind of uh, attack with uh, small molecules. Is that, is that a fair statement or is that just people haven't looked hard enough yet? Well, so in the case of coronavirus, there, as far as I know, there, was only a, there were only a couple of groups in the world that were actually looking for antivirals against coronaviruses. And uh, certainly Mark Dennison's group at Vanderbilt and, and our group were probably the major, major groups globally. Um, you know, many companies started to work with uh, developing antivirals against SARS, but um, they stopped within about six months of starting those efforts and all that work went on to a shelf and they forgot about it. And so um, the view that uh, emerging coronavirus could cause a pandemic with high mortality was just not viewed as a credible threat. And despite the fact that SARS coronavirus had emerged infected 8,000 people and killed 800 and that MERS coronavirus has a 35% mortality rate and we know that RNA viruses can mutate and it doesn't take very many mutations to go from, I'm trying to figure you out to I own you. Right. <laughs> and, uh, and because they make so many mutations uh, when they replicate, they, um, they sample a lot of diversity. And um, so there weren't uh, very many groups working on a broad spectrum anti uh, coronavirus antiviral. Uh, I would say the rhinovirus, and another example, I'll take rhinoviruses. There was a lot of effort early on to develop um, a compound that would work against the common cold. <clears throat> but uh, the major problem was is that uh, uh, when common cold viruses infect you, by the time you know you're sick, most of the damage has occurred, so the antiviral doesn't work. And so that's the, the, what happens with many, many respiratory viruses, even influenza virus. Influenza, sure, yeah. After day two or three, it is a crapshoot on whether or not that drug's doing any good or not sure. in the patient. So I mean, here's a virus actually where we know that there's substantial replication in people before they become symptomatic. So I guess that would be an opportunity. Are, are you actually optimistic about an oral antiviral or... Um, uh, we've published on one um, that is uh, currently being developed by um, Ridgeback Biosciences in collaboration with Merck, and it's in phase two trials um, and in several locations around the United States. It works great in animals and in primates, but I, I don't know, you know, I don't know where the things stand right now in humans. We don't know. You're making a good you're making a great case, though, for a more general need to have a longer attention span than we do as a biomedical research community. Um, well, well no, no kidding. I mean, <laughs> eight, eight epidemic or pandemic viruses in, right. in 20 years, that's every three years. Right. So if we project forward over the next 80 years, what is that, 25 more pandemic viruses? Come on, we need to wake up. <laughs> we oh, need sure. to do two things, two things absolutely critical. We need to strengthen our public health infrastructure and um, you know, really provide support for agencies like the CDC in terms, of terms to gear up their surveillance to make it 21st century-like. In other words, take advantage of the internet, take advantage of social contact networks, take advantage of uh, pathogen genome sequencing for uh, contact tracing at a granular level that makes a difference in terms of an expanding pandemic. 
And then the other thing we need to do is we need to develop drugs for you know, broadly broadly active drugs against uh, these these sort of pandemic virus families like alpha viruses, flaviviruses, coronaviruses, influenza, the paramyxoviruses, um, filoviruses that we we may have a good handle on, but we still need a little bit more, and uh, the hantaviruses. And these are uh, I apologize to any virus family group members out there <laughs> <studying some laughs> that, that I forgot, and now I'm going to get these terrible emails over the yeah. next. <laughs> you know, here's it. Read this paper. It's like I just forgot it. <laughs> but uh, certainly, all of the RNA viruses have the potential to be problematic, and and we should recognize that, and we should get broad spectrum drugs on a shelf. We can do this. This is not. This is not a um, an unsolvable problem. Yeah. Yeah. This is just let's put some resources here so that we don't ever have to face this again. Mm-hmm. So public health practice, public health, coupled with drug development, absolutely essential. Well, there's a question from Doug Richmond about TNPRSS2. Uh, do you have any comments about its role in pathogenesis of the disease? Yeah, so there are two major determinants for deter- you know, for regulating how coronavirus gets in a cell. The first is the receptor molecules, and the second are the proteases that have to cleave the spike to mediate entry processes. And TEMPRS2 is a major player. Now, um, uh, the funny part, of course, is, is that uh, not all coronaviruses are absolutely critical, require TEMPRS2 to mediate docking and entry. And so we can knock out TEMPRS2 in a mouse and still infect it just fine with SARS-1. SARS Didn't say SARS-2, SARS-1. <laughs> <laughs> and so there, are, there is actually a slew of proteases that could potentially be used by the virus to mediate entry into the cells. And uh, different SARBO coronaviruses, SARS-like coronaviruses have um, different cleavage sites that allow them to um, have more than one way into the cell. So for example, if you just target a single protease as a, um, um, as a drug against a coronavirus, you may find that it uh, attenuates replication in one cell type, but allows it to replicate in many other cell types. Mm-hmm. So uh, protease inhibitors are mm, a little bit of a it's not a one gene, one drug problem. It's a complex problem, and you need to think about it really carefully. Ralph, we have a ton of questions about vaccines. Do you, do you want to comment about um, whether you think that we'll have a successful vaccine? We, we just, in the New England Journal, we just saw that the um, mRNA vaccine protect, protected primates uh, in, a, in a challenge model. But, you know, in reading that, I can't tell whether that was a the softball, you know, it was a, an, an easy win for a vaccine or, or should that, should we be heartened by the fact that, that primates were protected or? So the primate models with um, SARS-2 are, um, they're, they're not rigorous. Um, they, they develop a mild disease. You have to put 10 to the sixth in to get any kind of disease signature. Uh, most of the readouts are in RT-PCR genome equivalents, which aren't that high, which means the virus titer is probably two to three logs lower than what they're showing in the paper. And so uh, there's no question that vaccines work pretty well, but is that a good model for how what's happening in a human? I, 
I am, I'm not 100% sure of at this time that it's a great model. Um, part of that may be because many of the viruses that are being used in those models have undergone four to five or six passages in cell culture and they have deletions in the furin cleavage sites and point mutations or deletions in the NTD domain and elsewhere that could affect pathogenesis. And so they're trying to work that out now with a more uniform challenge stock that may be more pathogenic. So I'm not sure whether it's the model or whether it's the viruses being tissue cultured adapted that went into the model that are causing the problem. The hamster model is pretty robust. Uh, the animals uh, lose 15% body weight. They get pretty sick. The pathology looks good in the animal. Um, and um, there have been several vaccines, I think, that have worked in that model. The new mouse models, the ACE2 transgenic mouse models uh, all suffer from um, a mild respiratory tract infection followed by uh, invasion of the central nervous system and death by encephalitis. Hmm. Uh, whether they're willing to admit it or not, depending on the model. <laughs> 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 um, and then the new mouse adapted model that we made is a lethal model with a more acute lung injury, ARDS phenotype, with lots of surfactant C and uh, which would result in a, a surfactant deficiency. Uh, could, um, so it's more like a, a severe respiratory tract infection. Um, the Moderna vaccine was tested in primates. Uh, it's certainly protected there. I think the, the better data is the New England Journal data that showed that the vaccine induced really high neutralizing titers, as well as various T cells, high neutralizing titers in human, especially aged and individuals. Right. Um, where they look at and they compared the, um, the neutralization titers to individuals who are infected with the virus naturally. And in that case, the vaccine and produced responses that were in the top quartile, in other words, the top 25% of the responses. So that's really encouraging because, you know, the aged population is a, it's a difficult population to vaccinate well. And the fact that the mRNA vaccine worked well, and that is a good sign. Mm -hmm. Now, does that mean it's going to protect? I don't know. Sure. But it's a good sign. The then, mRNA, the mRNA vaccines that we published with the NIH, uh, with MERS, which is a lethal disease model with 30% body weight loss and a full ARDS phenotype, completely protect those animals, young and old animals. So, it's a pretty rigorous vaccine, I think. Again, I, I. Um, um, you never know until you see the human data. Yeah. And, and there, then, but there are there are animal um, coronavirus vaccines, correct? That 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 work. I mean, there's a model. That someone asked about, you know, we haven't developed an HIV vaccine. Why should we be, you know, thinking we're going to develop a, a, a SARS-CoV-2 vaccine? I mean, th there is some. Um, well, let me start off by saying that. HIV is a very different beast. Right. <laughs> and the mutation rate for HIV is 10 to the minus third. So every one out of every thousand bases is a mistake. One out of every about a million bases is a mistake with SARS-2. So the evolution rate is different. SARS, um, uh, HIV is attacking uh, critical immune effector cells that regulate the whole immune response. SARS-2 is not, it's replicating in the lungs. So uh, there's no reason why we can't create a vaccine that works against SARS-2. 
and uh, HIV is the vaccinologist's worst nightmare, quite frankly. It's just a, a, a terrible disease. Uh, the virus uh, um, arsenal that attacks the immune response is unprecedented and its capacity to evolve and escape is unprecedented. And so that makes it very, very difficult to handle. Those aren't, the, that's not the scenario with, with uh, uh, coronaviruses. Now, have there been um, good coronavirus vaccines? Uh, the truth is the answer to that is mostly no. <laughs> <laughs> I tried. <laughs> but you know, there, there has been this feline infectious peritonitis virus experience, has there not? That's that correct. That's yeah. correct. And so once they got the vaccine, so in, in uh, there's two viruses, the feline enteric coronavirus and feline infectious peritonitis virus. They're basically the same thing, but one is um, associated with an antibody enhancement phenomena where the infection progresses to uh, a situation where the antibody allows the virus to infect macrophages and other immune cells that it normally can infect, and that causes everything to go bad. And if you vaccinate correctly, you can prevent that disease from happening. And so uh, that's, that's um, one example of where we've had some success. We've also had success in, in pigs and swine and also in, um, with infectious bronchitis virus, but it's limited success. So, uh, the swine coronavirus is typically sweep through and cause 90% mortality in young newborn piglets. And you can't vaccinate the newborn piglets. You have to have lactogenic immunity from the south. And so the only thing that really elicits a good lactogenic immune response so that there's high levels of neutralizing IgA antibodies in the mother's milk is through a live attenuated vaccine of the, of the south. And, um, and so that's provided some protection as well. But um, so there are ways to make vaccines that work, um, but not at a market. So I, I like this is like, so it's not really at a marketable scale where the industry is happy with the outcome. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> and there's such a pressure to develop a vaccine and, and release a vaccine before we know for sure how well it works. And as someone who's trying to um, you know, part, help with these vaccine trials, um, once there's a vaccine that's you know, available, the ability to test new vaccines or better vaccines becomes more and more challenging. So, so um, it really is a conundrum about, you know, when is the right time to say, you know, this, you know, this vaccine is good enough? Do, do you have a sense, Ralph or Chip? You you've thought about vaccines forever. I mean, um, yeah, I can. Uh, I don't. Uh, Chip, do you want to go first? Or I've been talking a lot. I don't mind waiting a second. No, no, they they listen to me all the time. You're uh, we we rarely get to hear what you think. So please. <laughs> Uh, so, so I think Operation Warp Speed has seven or eight vaccines that are moving forward. And um, uh, one of the biggest dangers, I think, is uh, early release of data that suggests that um, vaccine is effective based on a, few, on a few cases. And I'll say why. Most of those cases will be mild infections. 
So we don't, we won't really know whether the, the vaccine is working in the context of a severe case, severe infection. Most of those cases will not be in the elderly uh, since that fraction of the vaccine population is limited and there's limited representation of minorities and other ethnic groups. And so that's gonna take longer for those, that, those data to accumulate to, give a re, to get a really good idea of vaccine efficacy across the population. So the second thing I think that's really important is that even uh, if you know pretty well that a vaccine is working in, or by let's say December 1st, the next question is, well, when is the vaccine going to be, when are the doses going to be available? So if the doses aren't going to be available until February, then let's not release the information in January, in December and um, because that's immediately going to cause a collapse of all the other studies. I have volunteered for a vaccine, for example, and so one of the questions I asked was, if, if we find out a vaccine is working, will I, be, will I be told whether I was a placebo and can I get the vaccine or is that information going to be withheld? From and my understanding is that it's not, <laughs> which means <laughs> He's looking that at me. <laughs> I'm, I'm looking at Joe and he told me it's not. <laughs> no, but that means that the placebo controls um, may immediately flock to the new vaccine, which is going to un underpower all the other vaccine studies. And so let's not do that. And, uh, you know, unless we know a, the vaccine works really well uh, B, to give the other vaccines time to accumulate data so that we can have some idea of efficacy. I'm not going to say safety or durability because we're not sure. going to know that. We're going to know, we're going to know efficacy, short-term efficacy. And then when are those doses going to be available for distributing to the population in sufficient numbers to make a difference? And if, you know, uh, if it's February 1st, then let's hold off because we have different vaccine formulations. We got the, the mRNA-based vaccines, which re re require a critical cold chain, which means that they're not going to be too effective in Africa or uh, other places in the world that don't have cold chain custody, can't maintain cold chain. We've got some vaccines that are single dose only and recombinant protein vaccines, which would be very stable that could be used across the world. So we need time to accumulate that data. And so I think those are factors that need to be taken into account um, so that we have some idea of efficacy. Um, and I, I just mentioned that we won't know about safety <clears throat> until we've had the time for the vac for vaccine immune responses to potentially wane and for reinfection to occur. And if reinfection can occur six months or a year later, um, that's where we may see a safety signal. Yeah, yeah there, so. there are quite a few questions uh, in what we were sent pre-meeting pre about this issue of reinfection. Uh, it, I mean, Chip could comment because I think he's published several of them in his journal, but um, it looks like there probably are well-documented reinfections, not a not hundred of them, but, but certainly multiple ones that look very real. Can you comment on that? And it, is that, you know, five cases out of 40 million or is that just the tip of an iceberg of, of, of multiple reinfections? And, uh, and so, so both China and Korea um, reported hundreds of reinfections. 
Now, they weren't able to validate it because the virus was the ancestral strain that was virtually identical. Mm. And so we've, we've now had at least two cases where individuals were infected with the ancestral strain and then reinfected with the new uh, global genotype variant. And so that data argues that reinfections can occur. And then there was a reinfection in the Netherlands of an elderly woman who was immunosuppressed who, who died from the secondary infection. Um, I think the other two cases were milder after the first infection, if I remember correctly. So the prediction again would be with, with any respiratory virus to have sterilizing immunity in the nose and the upper airways is um, almost impossible for long-term duration. And so it wanes, from my understanding, is it wanes at different rates in the lower respiratory tract versus the higher respiratory tract. And the nose has its own lymphoid tissue that is important in making an immune response in the nose. And it wanes quicker than it does in the lower respiratory tract. And so, you know, you can get reinfected and you have a mild upper respiratory tract infection. The host is okay with it because it, you know, you get to stay home and watch TV. <laughs> you know, you don't have to go to work. You're not that sick. Um, and the virus is happy because it can, it can replicate and transmit. So it's a sort of a commensal, is that the right word? Yeah. It's a happy, it's a happy, happy relationship between sure. the, sure it's happy. Yeah. So that's what I would end. I would anticipate that that would happen. I don't know what that cycle is. And that's why that, you know, the longer term durability of these vaccines are going to give us a lot of information about, you know, what is the, what is the protective immune response at what level does that fail? And um, if we have that information, then we know how to do, you know, we know, we know what time, sort of timeline might be necessary for boosts to occur boosts. in the population. Wow. We're, you're going to lose your voice. We're, we're, we're really working you out. Uh, Chip, any, okay. any additional questions? We're, 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 at, we're actually a little bit over an hour. No, I, I think we really should give him a rest and let him stop aerosolizing whatever virus he's carrying and, um, <laughs> and uh, go and uh, join the UNC students. Um, uh, for a coronavirus transmission experience, but uh, it's, been, <laughs> it's been great. Uh, I had to do my part, right? <laughs> right, got to do your part. You're part of the vaccine study. You'll help Joe out as well. If you go down and, and get yourself exposed. No, I, I'm being facetious. It really is uh, has been a great uh, opportunity to uh, learn a lot about uh, the long experience you've had with these viruses because they're really quite germane to the way we're thinking and. Uh, uh, what we're, what the challenges are, and we appreciate all the work that you and your colleagues have done and are doing to help us uh, dig out of this. Uh, I think the thing that if anybody remembers um, from this is the point you made that the there are some things that are a surprise, and this shouldn't be one of them, uh, that we're dealing with this now. And we're going to be dealing with this for a long time and with similar events like this, uh, as long as there are humans on the planet, and we need to start thinking about longer term solutions rather than just dealing with last last month's virus, uh, which is the way we've approached things. That's right. Uh, a, um, a, reactive a reactive response is um, uh, a painful way to respond to a pandemic. You want a proactive response so that you are somewhat prepared and, and have things in place. And again, I, I can't reiterate enough the importance of, of public health preparedness 
uh, an appreciation by the public for public health practices, an appreciation for the importance of masks and social distancing and preventing transmission. Because right now, um, best case scenario, before a vaccine comes out, we are still looking at 200,000 deaths, maybe 250,000. Best case scenario when the vaccine comes out. The only way to stop that is going to be public health practice, wearing a mask, thinking about how you be safe, uh, not being cavalier about the potential danger of the virus. Um, because again, for most of us, it's not going to be us that pays the penalty. It's going to be our grandparents, our parents, uh, other elderly people, uh, people who have some underlying uh, disease, comorbidity, perhaps a friend that is going to pay the price for uh, your behavior. So, you know, for God's sakes, think about the people around you. We, we couldn't agree more. There's, this is not research that needs to be done. It's been done already. These uh, interventions work and uh, it's our responsibility to, uh, to promote them and to, uh, to take them seriously. So thanks for that eloquent uh, comment um, to end a really interesting hour. And we hope to see you again uh, for more of these in the future. But thanks for taking the time from what you've been doing and much appreciated by all of us. Well, this was, it was a great audience. I really enjoyed it. It was fun talking with you and we got to laugh some and uh, talk some science and um, hopefully um, informed uh, people who wanted to sit in and listen to us uh, generate a lot of hot air, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was a great audience. So thanks, Ralph. Appreciate it. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank, Thank you, you for attending. Bye. Bye-bye.